15, Numbers chapter 3. I want to read from verse 5 uh, down to verse 13. And you're probably wondering how we're ever going to get to chapter 25. <laughs> Be patient, we'll get there. <clears throat> we just need to lay a foundation first, and uh, we want to do that uh, hopefully well. Uh, but we will start putting our pedal to the metal in uh, uh, some sessions after this. So verse 5 of Numbers 3, it says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given unto him out of the children of Israel. And thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall wait on the priest's office. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, and I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, mine shall they be. I am the Lord. And again, we believe God will bless the reading of his precious word uh, this morning. Uh, one thing that uh, it, this uh, handout that you got, which lays out the, uh, the or order and arrangement of the tribes, one thing that it will, will, will tell you is this, that God is a God of order. Everything was laid out according to the order that God gave them. And nothing was left to the imagination of man. It was all God telling them where they should be. And we said that they were uh, situated in such a way that when they opened their tent door, what they saw was the tabernacle, the house of God. And the thought being that their lives were really revolving around the house of God. And we said that that's true today, really, that our lives should be uh, centered around God's house. In our era, the, the house of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And, and certainly our life should be centered around the local church. And I want to just say this too, that uh, God, is, is, God knows what he wants. When it came to the tabernacle, nothing was left to man's imagination. Every detail was given by God. Every detail. And everything had significance. Uh, if you've ever done any studies in the tabernacle, you realize that all the different parts of the tabernacle spoke somehow of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And it was a glorious object lesson that would cause them to think about him and his work. I want to suggest to you that when it comes to the New Testament church, the purpose of God having a pattern, and he does have a pattern. It's not up to our whims and fancies. God has a pattern in his word, and it's clear. It's very clear. The problem is not that the pattern's clear. The problem is it's man doesn't often want to see what God says. You know, people are willfully ignorant. The pattern is there. 
I saw the pattern before I ever came into fellowship in an assembly, just by studying the scriptures. I was convinced of assembly principles before I ever met with a New Testament assembly, just by reading the Bible. The pattern is there if you really want to see it. But I meet lots of people, they don't really want to see it. Because they like it the way it is in their particular place of choice. But all I'm saying is that God is a God of order. And the, the pattern God has given for the New Testament church, just like the tabernacle, every detail of the New Testament assembly is designed to speak about the person and work of Christ. People say, you know, why do you get so excited about these principles? Uh, you know, you should just focus on the Lord. <laughs> I say to them, you've got to be kidding me. These principles all focus my attention on the Lord. That's the whole point of them. Right? So there's a pattern and it's clear and, and it, it's laid out in the Word of God. And to the extent that we ignore the pattern, we miss something that God wants us to see about His Son. And, and I think there's a price to pay for that. Uh, you can't improve on God's order and God's design. Man thinks he can, uh, but what does man know? Man's always getting it wrong, isn't he? We were just talking this morning about these trends, you know. Uh, one minute they tell you, you've got to eat margarine, that butter's bad for you. Now they're telling you, no, 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 margarine, it's man-made, it's bad, it's all... You know what I mean? Experts don't know anything. God knows everything, right? So I'd rather listen to the all-wise God than so-called human wisdom. Because it's foolishness. And we need to just follow what God says. And uh, in doing so, there's blessing. And so what we're saying is that the believer should not see the assembly as just an add-on on life, but as the center in which life revolves. And um, in, in a very real sense that uh, your gifts are meant to be used in building up the body of Christ. Uh, your energy is meant to be used in that way. So there's a real significance. Your, your, your life should be centered around that. And of course, uh, the, we're saying that this, this whole pattern is all about the Lord Jesus. And we, don't want to, uh, we, we want to worship the Lord, not the church, but the church points us to Him. And so that's why it's significant. Now, also, I want you just to notice, too, that um, in chapter 2, uh, the men of war were to pitch by their own standard. Uh, just look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. And so the idea is that they, all these, uh, these various armies made up of the different tribal groupings, uh, there was a standard to which they were to gather, right? There was an ensign. Uh, and just like in, in, in past days before walkie-talkies and all the rest of it, they used to be kind of the regimental flag. And if, if the person that carried the flag, if they were shot, somebody else would pick it up. And, and that would be the, the rallying point. Rally to the flag, right? That idea. And so the idea was that they were, to, they were pitching according to their standards. And, and there were, they were standards of the camp. Now, I want to suggest to you that as we look at these standards of the camp um, and the arrangement of them, uh, we notice that the tribes are all listed in groups of three. So the north side, you've got Asher, Dan, Naphtali, all the rest of it. And the central tribe, Dan, uh, is the leading tribe. But we'll show you where we get that from in a moment. Uh, on the west side, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh. The leading tribe is Ephraim. 
uh, on the south side, Gad, Reuben, Simeon, the leading tribe is Reuben. And then on the east side, Issachar, Judah, Zebulun, Judah is the leading tribe. And I want to suggest to you that the ensign of that, those leading tribes, that they were the central tribes, if you like, as they're laid out in the three at each side, the central tribe is, is the one that to that ensign they were to look. And let me just show you where I'm getting this from. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 3, leading tribe is given first. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies, and Nashon, the son of Amminadab, shall be captain of the children of Judah. Okay, look at verse 10. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben according to their armies. And the captain of the children of Reuben shall be Ali, Eliezer, the son of Shedur. And then um, in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim, according to their armies. And the captain of the sons of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of uh, Amihud. And then chapter 2, verse 25, and probably these pronunciations are all wrong, but yeah, you, you'll suffer a fool gladly here, I hope. Verse 25, the standard of the camp of Dan shall be on the north side by their armies, and the captain of the children of Dan shall be Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. Okay, so basically, what we're saying is then, these four standards, the leading tribe on each side, they were to gather, uh, as it were, to this standard on, on, in, in these four tribes. Now, you say, where are we going with this? We're definitely going somewhere, so just kind of relax a minute. We're definitely going somewhere with this. Um, Jewish scholars tell us what was on the standard of these four leading tribes. And this is where it's going to give some significance. For instance... The, the standard or the flag of which the tribe of Judah were to gather to and the three tribes on that side, okay, had on it a young lion. Of course, you can understand why, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Ephraim, uh, that had on its standard an ox, the tribe of Reuben, and of course Reuben means behold the man. It was the firstborn, you know, of the, uh, the, the, the wives of, of Jacob. It was Leah and behold the man, right? I mean, it kind of, they were excited that the first man child was born, behold the man. And so the standard of Reuben was a man. And then Dan, his standard was an eagle. Okay, now some of you know where I'm going with this because if you look at the book of Ezekiel, and uh, we won't take our time to go there, but there are these cherubim, these, uh, these glorious beings uh, that are there beneath the chariot of Jehovah. And uh, these, these cherubim had four faces. Their faces were uh, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, the face of an eagle. And some have suggested, and this goes all the way back to the church fathers, this is not a new idea, but what they've suggested is that, that these cherubim, just like in the tabernacle everything speaks of Christ, and the tabernacle is a pattern of things in heaven, right? Could it be that, that these, these cherubim also would speak to us of the Lord Jesus? It almost seems like everything in heaven seems to speak of Him. And so the idea of the young lion would take us to the Gospel of Matthew, wouldn't it? Because the Gospel of Matthew is really the Gospel that presents Christ as the King, 
the lion, if you like, as king always speaks of royalty, or lion speaks of royalty. And so uh, it, it presents to us uh, Christ in that aspect as the king. Uh, and then um, the ox, which represents Ephraim, uh, well, uh, that's the gospel of Mark. Because when you think of an ox, I often say to people, it's the John Deere tractor of the ancient world. <laughs> the, the ox, uh, you know, patient, untiring service would speak of servanthood. And, and Matthew's gospel is, is not behold your king, which is Matthew, but it's behold the man. Oh, oh, sorry, behold the servant, behold your servant. And it presents the Lord Jesus as a servant. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, if you think about these gospels, you look at Matthew and the big thing in Matthew is the genealogy, right? If you've ever started reading Matthew, you've got this, this genealogy. Why is that so significant in Matthew's gospel? Because, because as an Englishman, if I go back to England and say, look, I don't think when Queen Elizabeth passes on that Charlie is up to the job. And I think I should be the next king of England. <coughs> And they'd say to me, well, probably arrest me, but even if, if they didn't do that, they'd say, well, let's check your genealogy. That's the first thing they would do. And you know what they'd say? You're a peasant, forget it. That's what they would say. But when it came to the Lord Jesus, nobody's going to take any of his claims seriously until he can prove that he has a genealogical claim on the throne. And that's why Matthew's gospel goes into this genealogy. Mark's gospel... No genealogy. Why? Whoever cared about the genealogy of a servant? You see, the purpose of, of Mark is behold the servant. <clears throat> when you come to uh, Reuben, the ensign is a man. And Luke's gospel is behold the man. It presents the Lord Jesus as the dependent man. Somebody was talking about prayer the other day and they were talking about Luke's gospel. I think it was Joe who went through Luke's gospel. Why is there so much emphasis on prayer in Luke's gospel more than the other gospels? You know why? Because he's there as the dependent man. That's why. And he's the perfect man. And, of course, the genealogy is there again, but it's not so much as interested in, in the idea of going back to David and Abraham, although it does that, but it goes all the way back to Adam to show the perfect humanity of the Lord Jesus. You see? So it's very significant. And then, of course, the final tribe, Dan, has this ensign of an eagle, and that, of course, uh, takes us to the Gospel of John where we don't start with the genealogy, but how do we start? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, word was God. We start in the heavenlies, right? With the soaring eagle, the, the, the one who truly was God. And of course, we don't need a genealogy there. We need to understand his heavenly origin, that he's the, the Lord from heaven. Now, I want to just say another thing about uh, these four Gospels as they present the Lord Jesus and the interesting thing to me is that who God picked to write each gospel. Because when it comes to Matthew's gospel, the gospel of the king, he picks a man who was considered disloyal because he worked for the Romans. You get the point there? I mean, you know, he's not even loyal to Israel. He's working for the enemy. God picked somebody disloyal, seemingly, Matthew, uh, Levi, as he was, <laughs> And he's working for the enemy. And he picks him to write the gospel that tells us to be loyal to the king. That's just interesting, isn't it? And then we think of Mark's gospel and we say, well, it's about the perfect servant. So who did he pick 
a failed servant. You know what? He was the first missionary casualty, remember? He bombed out on the first missionary journey. And so here's a man that fails as a servant, and God says, I want you to write about the servant who will not fail. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't God gracious that he would allow a man that failed to write about one that won't fail? And then we've got Luke's gospel, and Luke was a physician. He spends his whole life examining the imperfections in man. Right? Why do you go to a doctor? (laughs) Because there's something wrong. That's why you go to a doctor, right? And he spends his whole life looking at what's wrong with man, and he gets to write about a man. There's nothing wrong with him. He's perfect. Isn't that wonderful? And then John, the one who laid his head on the bosom of the Lord Jesus, got to write the gospel of the one who ever lived in the bosom of the Father. Now, again, you may just think this is all kind of flowery nonsense. I think it's wonderful. I mean, I just think the way the Word of God fits together, I don't know about you, but I get excited every time I read my Bible. I think, what a book is this? There's no other book like this. It's fantastic. And they're gathering, you see, and what we're saying is this camp, the order of it, it's not just kind of some arbitrary thing, but everything about it will speak to us about Christ. And who do we gather to? I can tell you that we gather to the Lord Jesus. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be right? Where two or three are gathered together in his name. There he is in the midst. And so he's our gathering center. He's the banner to which we rally. That's why we were saying yesterday, our identity is not that we're involved in some kind of parachurch organization and I'm a this or I'm a, it's I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And it's to him that I gather. And he, it's, to him, it's to his banner that I rally. And that should be true of all of us. And it's a wonderful thing to follow him. Uh, and, uh, and yet, what's so interesting is, at least here um, in the Old Testament, it tells us in verse 2, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. And then notice the next phrase. Far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. You get get that? Far off. Uh, Some suggest that um, uh, just like when Joshua uh, had the priests bear the ark and they had to stand back 2,000 cubits. That's about 1,000 yards. I mean, they've got to keep the distance. Don't get too, too close, right? And so there they are, kind of afar off. Now that's, these are the tribes of Israel. What about the mixed multitudes, the Gentiles that came? I mean, they're even further away, aren't they? And that's the amazing thing, you see. In the old economy, all the, everything about it is emphasizing distance. Don't come close. Don't get too, clo- too near. The, only, you know, the best the old economy could do was get one man in once a year. I don't understand why people want to go back under the old economy. You know, people want to keep the feasts and do all this. Why would you want to play in the shadows when you've got the substance? And there are people that want to do that. They want to go back to this old stuff. But the old stuff, it emphasized our distance. But the wonderful thing about in the new covenant is this, that we're brought near. Gentiles that once were afar off were brought near by the blood of Christ. Isn't that tremendous?
We said that. We can go right into the heavenly sanctuary anytime we want. That's wonderful, isn't it? What a privilege. I don't know about you. You just kind of look dull today. I don't know what it is. But I want to tell you something. Can you not sense the wonder of it all? Don't ever, beloved, lose the wonder of these truths in the Word of God that we can have enjoy intimacy with God. That's a great privilege. Gentiles at once were so far off. Now, I'm going to tell you how far off they were. This camp, according to many, they worked it out based on the numbers and everything, was 12 miles square. See, you look at that piece of paper, it doesn't mean a whole lot to you, right? It just kind of looks, you know, what's the big deal? But We're talking about 603,000 men, right? If you add them up, and somebody already has done that, and they didn't, uh, they just kind of read the chapter, it would have told them at the end of the chapter how many, because God gives us the toll. But if you add it all up, you end up with 603,550 men. On top of that, there are 23,000 Levites. So let's just say 625,000, okay? Just round figure. Now, let's assume they were 20 years old and upwards. So let's assume they were married because that's kind of the normal thing, isn't it? And uh, certainly in the Jewish kind of system, when you, were, when you had your bar mitzvah back then, you were considered a man and they got married pretty early. So let's just imagine, conservative estimate, that they had two children. So you double your 625,000 because they get married. Because we don't have any, this is all men, right? And there's got to be equal amount of women. So, so, and then they have two children. That takes you to 2.5 million. But back then, they didn't just have two children, <laughs> right? That's our problem, you see. Our problem is that we're not even producing enough offspring to actually maintain our numbers. Did you know that? That's why the Muslims are going to take over the world. I'm serious, is because they have more babies. That's why by, well, they say 2049, now I don't think we're going to be here in 2049. But they say by 2049, the whole of Europe will be a Muslim caliphate. Just by sheer breeding. They have average seven children. In Europe, they're not even having two. They're not even maintaining, they're dying. Europeans are a dying race. Because you have to have 2.2 to maintain, not to increase. Uh, and I could get kind of carried away and get excited about that. I'm not going to, but I'm just telling you that we're talking here of 2.5 million people. Can you get the sense of this? No wonder Balaam, as he looked down from the mountaintop, got excited. Can you imagine 2.5 million people in order going through the wilderness? Wasn't that a sight? I mean, that would take your breath away, wouldn't it? This is incredible. God is transplanting a nation. That's what he's doing. And by the way, God's promise to Abraham is already beginning to be fulfilled. Do you remember what he said back in Genesis 12, 2? Let's just look there and remind ourselves of the promise. Genesis 12, 2, made to him when there were no children in sight and not even a possibility of it. Remember, he and well, we heard Hebrews 11 last night, and it talked about uh, the fact that, that, that Sarah was past bearing and all these things. And God says to him, in that condition, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And so, amazingly enough, there were 70 souls that went down into Egypt. 
That was it, 70. 400 years later, there are 2.5 million souls making the journey from Egypt to the land of Canaan. Isn't that amazing? Folks, this is am I find this kind of stuff staggering. And uh, it, it's, that's why, why you've got to study books like this. Because, because uh, it, it gives you a sense of wonder what God did here. And it was amazing. Now, just another point, and, and uh, uh, we'll see in verse 9 here. Uh, it tells us that Judah was to lead the way when the camp went. Of course, we know that ultimately what happened was the, 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 the cloudy pillar would move and they would follow the cloudy pillar. And then the Ark of the Covenant would follow. But then when it came to the actual armies, Judah would go first. And we get that from verse 9. It says uh, in verse 9, And all that were numbered in the camp of Judah were 100,000, fourscore, 1,000, 6,000, and 400 throughout their families. These shall first set forth. So whenever the camp moved, Judah was the first. Now, of course, the interesting thing is that our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, didn't he? And, the, and, and he is the captain of of our salvation and the idea is that he leads the way and we just follow <laughs> that's what we do right we should be following him and and he's the one that is our leader he's our captain and uh, so that's what they were to do now just a, another interesting thing uh, we notice um, on the the east side and of course when uh, the tabernacle was in operation um, they would come uh, the door of the tabernacle was on the east uh, because the sun um, rises in the east and, and they didn't want, God didn't want them worshipping the sun. Okay? So they're, go they're looking west. They're going in through the east looking west. And so as they go into the tabernacle, interestingly enough, Judah is right next to Aaron and Moses. So you've got priesthood and praise right next to each other. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because praise and priesthood do go together, don't they? When we come into the presence of God as priests, what's our purpose? One of it is praise, isn't it? So praise and priesthood. Uh, now, there's so many things we could talk about. I mean, we could spend all day just in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but as soon as you want to give me 40 minutes, we can't do that. Um, you know, uh, that's the, I say to people, I go to, go to Malaysia and... Uh, uh, they give me six hours, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's kind of exciting. And, you know, I mean, the 18 hours a week, that kind of stuff. And you do two hours every night, six hours on Saturday, uh, four hours Sunday. It's just it's it's kind of interesting. And so I have to uh, just watch my heart that I don't become cynical uh, here in America. Now, we want to just do something here. We want to look at chapter three now. and We want to think about something very important. We want to distinguish between priests and Levites. All priests were Levites. Okay, in other words, you couldn't be a priest unless you were of the tribe of the Levi. But not all Levites were priests. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, this is not a riddle. I'm not, <laughs> I'm just, this is just the way it is. All priests, uh, <coughs> Okay, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. To be a priest, you had to be a son of Aaron. So the idea is that Levi had more than one son, right? Moses was a son of Levi. 
right? So there's more than one son. But it, you had to be, to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi, and you also had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. That's why we call it the Aaronic priesthood. But there were, there were other sons of Levi who comprised what we call the Levites. And the Levites were to assist the priests in their work, but they couldn't do the work of priests. So they're to assist them, but they can't do their work. So that's, that's the idea. We want to just get that straight, uh, that they were to assist the priests. And so they did a lot of service uh, activities concerning the tabernacle, but they actually didn't um, uh, actually go into the sanctuary and, and do the things that the Aaronic priests did. And... Um, Perhaps it's true to say that there are more Levites today than priests. What I mean by that is there are more Christians who are happy to serve than to spend time in prayer in the sanctuary. Would you say that would be true in the average assembly? And and we thank God, by the way, for everybody that wants to serve. But boy, we need people who are going to go into the sanctuary, don't we? And pray. There's one sister I know, and she every time I see her, she says, Mike, she says, every morning I get up at 5 o'clock, and I have a list of people that I pray for every day, and you are one of the people on that list. And I say to her sister, it's, it, you know, if you gave me a bar of gold, it wouldn't mean as much as what you just said to me. Isn't that wonderful? That she's acting as a believer priest going into the presence of God every single day on my behalf. Now, there's a lot of Christians that serve me. And, and, and I don't mean that, you know, uh, you know, as they, they show kindness, you know, and, and the kindness of the people of God is wonderful. But to have people who intercede as priests is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And so uh, I think sometimes in our assemblies, we, we need to, to kind of maybe redress that a little bit. We need, we need to have more prayer warriors. The prayer, if you look at the average assembly, what's it like? Okay, uh, breaking of bread is so big. Family Bible Hour, bigger still. Prayer meeting. And that, that's the fisherman in reverse, right? <laughs> Instead of going that way, we're going this way. Is there any wonder we're not going anywhere spiritually? Right? Because we're not really committed to believing prayer. And there's no wonder we're not seeing blessing. We need Levites, servants that will serve the house of God, but we need priests that will avail of the privilege of going into the sanctuary. Are you a Levite or are you a priest? It's a good question. Now, let me tell you something about Levi in the remaining minutes that we have. Uh, I want you to go to Genesis 49. And I just want you to see, see something about Levi. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. This is uh, Jacob as he basically kind of prophesies about his sons and what they'll become and what what they're like. And and he kind of gives an assessment of them. And he says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly mine honor, be not thou united. 
For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, their wrath, for it was cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? What, what were Levi by nature? Angry, cruel, vicious. That's their position by nature. What is their position by grace? God picked this tribe who by nature were <laughs> cruel, vicious. And they're the tribe that get to go in, in a sense, and serve in the sanctuary. Isn't that amazing? And we don't understand that. What are we by nature? What are we by nature? I mean, if you knew stuff about what I was like by nature, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. <laughs> you wouldn't. You'd be <laughs> I don't want to listen to this guy. But what am I by grace? And that, we could say that about anybody here, any one of us. By nature, what are we? We're dirty, rotten, hell-deserving sinners. But by grace, we're priests unto God. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Don't you just love grace? Oh, I'm glad God doesn't deal with me by nature, but He deals with, my, with me by grace, and that gives us such a privilege. And so the, these, uh, these instruments of cruelty, I, just, I love that. The instruments of cruelty are now handling the very instruments of divine worship. That, that's just tremendous. And um, it's the way of grace to take up the very worst cases and to, well, to change them and use them for His glory. Now, the other thing that we learn in chapter 3, and um, verse 12 and 13, it tells us that the, the, the Levites have taken from among the children of Israel instead of the firstborn. Remember on the Passover night, all the firstborn were to die. And, uh, and God redeemed the firstborn so they belong to Him. When you redeem something, you purchase it and it belongs to you. Right? So they were purchased by God. But God says, okay, I'm now going to allow the Levites to serve me instead of the firstborn. And we just want to end with this thought, and that is this, that you have been redeemed. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been redeemed at great price. And you're not your own. God purchased you. You belong to Him. And He wants you in His service. He didn't save you so that you could live a self-centered life and just do what you want. He purchased you at great price, and now the rest of your days, you're to serve Him. And by the way, it, it's a privilege to serve Him. Uh, we'll never be sorry that we served Him. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will never regret that you gave your life serving Him. But I suspect that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you've lived a self-centered life, even though you're redeemed, you, you'll be one look in His lovely face and you will think to yourself, what was I thinking? You really will. And so I want to encourage you as a redeemed person, if that's your condition, to spend the rest of your days in divine service.
because you'll never end up with regret. And by the way, he is the best of masters. He's, it's wonderful to serve him. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn of me. You know, it's a great thing, isn't it, to serve him? Well, I also have to serve the brethren here, and I dare not go over or else something may happen. So let's pray. Father, we're just thankful for what we can learn from these early chapters in the book of Numbers. We're thankful again for the fact that you're so in love with your son that you have decked the halls of the Old Testament with pictures of him so that wherever we look, we see him. We think of even the New Testament church, how every detail of it is designed to speak of Christ and not to give glory to man. Well, Father, we ask that we take your instructions seriously and not have such arrogance that we think we can do better than your divine plan. Lord, help us to be sober and serious about these things. Lord, I pray that your redeemed people might counted a joy to spend the rest of their days in divine service. We'll give you the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.